Anyone feel led to open in prayer for us? Anyone would like to pray? I think Zev said he wanted to pray too. Did All you? right. Let us pray. Abba Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to come together to learn from your word. Open our hearts and minds to the movement of your spirit through your word, especially in the words of your, the Psalter, the worship book of Israel, that we may find our own faith and devotion to you deepened. We ask this in the name of your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Okay, first of all, I do have to ask any questions or comments from last week. It's too bad we didn't have our legal contingent in place last week. Okay, we are going to move on. Um, somehow I get the feeling I should be standing on one foot about the idea of covering the Psalter in a single session. So uh, it is a vast subject, so obviously we're only going to be able to hit a few points, but hopefully I can pique your interest into taking another look at this most fascinating book of the Hebrew Scriptures. And to begin with, I would like us to look at this uh, two-sided handout that says the Ashray. The Ashray. Ashrei Yoshvei Vetecha, Odi Hallelujah Selah. Ashrei Ha'am Shekahalo, Ashrei Ha'am Sharonoi Elohav. Tehillah LeDavid, maybe I shouldn't sing this morning. Excuse me. Okay, now I know you didn't understand that, but the reason I did chant that is that if you were a devout Jewish person, those words chanted probably in that way, you would have heard and have read twice a day, every day of your life. Because this particular psalm which is Psalm 145 with some additions at the head and at the back, is one of the essential elements of both morning and afternoon prayer. In morning prayer, you actually continue after the Ashray with Psalms 146 through 150, and that forms the core or the heart of an entire section called Pesuke de Zimra, or uh, sentences of song, taken almost entirely from the Psalms. And so, what I thought we would do is begin by reciting this together. So, will you please join me? Blessed are those who dwell in your house.
comments or questions about anything during our recitation that came to your mind? Okay, in a sense, it, it is narrative. So what does that tell you about the sort of context for the book of Psalms in its original setting? It tells you that you have to look at the Psalms in the context of the history of Israel. Okay? it presupposes that history as its context. It is nested in a cultural context, and it is the history of Israel as the history of the saving acts of God. Other comments, questions? Couple of, th yeah. Yes, you are absolutely correct, and we're going to go into that point. It's, called, it's the basis in many ways of Hebrew poetry. What you hit upon is what is known as parallelism. Parallelism. And that's the other thing to point out. This is poetry. It is not prose. It is poetry, and that means we are always speaking in the language of metaphor. But again, that, that parallelism is going to be very important. We'll go into a little more detail about that. Other comments or questions? Okay, just a few other things to point out about it. You notice that we recited a song of praise of David. Or in the Hebrew, Tehillah David. Did that strike you as odd? If you look at the Psalter in your Bible, it has, you know, very many of them have sort of like titles or what they call superscriptions, and they have uh, things that they, you know, indicate about, you know, this is of David, this is of the sons of Korah. If you look in the Psalter in your Book of Common Worship, you won't find them. You won't find them. Because in Christian worship, we don't do that. Guess what? In Jewish worship, you absolutely do. That is part of the psalm, and it is recited. Another thing you may have noticed, that word selah that appears in the very first verse, what does that mean? Anybody know? Yes, a cella occurs frequently in the Psalms. Well, if you don't know what it means, you're in good company. Neither do scholars. <laughs> Nobody knows what it means. However, the current best hunch is that it is actually a musical direction. It either indicates raising the key a pitch or two, or it might indicate an increase in volume. Okay. It is some, yeah. What do you think? Well, it might be because they were an embellishment that occurred afterwards. It might be that kind of thing. However, the other thing is they are very seldom fit into the poetical structure. And we were mostly concerned with the poetical structure, you know, the actual poem itself. They were considered. Plus, there are some things in there that most people would find very difficult. For example... At the beginning of Psalm 69, to the leader, according to lilies of David. 
Okay, Lamanatseach, sometimes translated to the choir master. According to lilies. Anybody have any idea what that according to lilies is? What? I heard somebody say something. Exactly. It's probably the tune to which it was chanted, to be chanted. Now, here comes the punchline. If tunes were sometimes suggested for chanting, what does that tell you about how the psalms were used? They were chanted. This was not something you read to yourself in private and in silence. They were chanted, either by a choir or by a cantor. Who would have been the choir that chanted them? What? The people. The people. But in particular, there was one group of people who would have been very involved in chanting these psalms. Not the rabbis. The Levites. The Levites. And where were the Levites, the choir? In the temple. So here comes another important point. These are public worship. The Psalms are essentially public worship. Remember last week we talked about the law court form of prayer and we talked about the context being the covenant and the people of Israel. It's a communal thing. There are individual Psalms, certainly, but the overall context would have been public communal worship, not private devotion. Okay, I think we probably milked that for all that we can get without further delving, so let us move on. They might have. We'll get to that in a moment uh, when we get to another hymn. Okay. Now, characteristics of Hebrew poetry. Characteristics of Hebrew poetry. The one thing is that you are talking about verses consisting of two strophes, sometimes called two stitches, exactly what you noticed. Okay? It is a, you, you'll always have these two verses, and, you know, each one is, you know, there's like uh, two paths that have a certain parallelism of structure. Now, one thing, there are certain elements of Hebrew poetry that simply cannot translate. The meter is a matter of a certain number of stressed syllables in each line. Ashrei Yoshvei Veitecha, Od Yehalalucha Sela, Ashrei Ha'am Shekachalo, Ashrei Ha'am Sha'adonai Elohav. In other words, each of the two strophes has the same number of stressed syllables. It's not meter in terms of our poetry about iambic pectam- uh, you know, pentameter or anything like that. It is a certain number of stressed syllables per line. Okay? The, th- the next thing is the parallelism. And this is probably the single most important thing to keep in mind about Hebrew poetry. Parallelism is the fundamental pattern of how poetry is constructed. This is before the invention of rhyme. There is no such thing in Hebrew poetry as rhyme. We don't have that. Instead, what you have is a parallelism of ideas. 
Sometimes the parallelism is between the two strophes of a single verse. Sometimes it's between verses. And it tends to be two forms. Either synonymous parallelism, where the second line says pretty much the same thing as the first, but in a different way, in order to reinforce the meaning. Or antithetical parallelism. Now, can you think of an example of synonymous parallelism that as Christians we probably say every day? Give you a hint, it's in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's a classic example of Hebrew parallelism. Classic Hebrew parallelism. This is another thing that is not translatable. You sometimes have an alphabetical acrostic. If you look at the little footnote that I have at the bottom of that ashray handout on on the back of it, Psalm 145 is composed of 21 verses, each starting with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet arranged alphabetically. This makes Ashrei easy to memorize. The only Hebrew letter that does not begin a verse of Psalm 145 is the letter Nun. Nun. Not Nun. Nun. Okay. All right. Uh, In later rabbinic interpretation, they say the reason why the Ashrei does not have it is that Nun is a letter that indicates oppression, tribulation, difficulty. It's a downer of a letter. You just don't, you know. There are acrostics that include Nun, and they're not as happy as the Ashrei. Because Ashrei, sometimes translated blessed, happy, Anybody care to guess when our Lord uttered the Beatitudes what word that we translated blessed he was using? He was using probably the word ashray, meaning happy are those. Happy are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Happy are you when men persecute you. Okay. And we are talking about musical annotations, such as Sela, or On the Lilies, or several other things like that. In other words, these were lyrics that had tunes. Exactly. Parallelism of ideas means that that essential aspect of the poetry is translatable. It is translatable. uh, Because you can translate the idea. You can't translate an alphabetical acrostic. You can't translate a meter that's based on a certain number of stressed syllables in Hebrew. You can't really translate a rhyme. Uh, Let me just give you an example of that. How many people would care to guess who, I don't know if it's still the case, but at least up until a few years ago, who the best-selling poet in the United States is? What? Not Robert Frost. What? Not Keats. Not Dr. Seuss. The Persian poet Rumi. Jalaluddin Mavlevi Rumi. Okay, he was a 13th century Persian mystical poet who wrote in Farsi. And part of the difficulty is that his poetry is certainly magnificent. It will keep translators busy for a long time, but one of the things that cannot possibly be translated is the complex rhyme schemes that he has, not only between verses, but even within verses. It is abs- and what's absolutely extraordinary about these poems with complex rhyme schemes is that they were uttered in a state of spiritual ecstasy brought on by the grief of the loss of his friend. 
Okay, but we don't have that here. In other words, this is sort of the good news of the fact that we read the Psalms in translation, is that although we cannot get many of the poetical features of the Hebrew, we can get the most central feature of Hebrew poetry, which is the parallelism of ideas. Okay. Now, there's another handout that you have, which I am not going to go through in detail. This is one that is definitely for your future use. As you go home and study the Psalms, I recommend reading the entire piece and using this as a study guide as you look at hymns. The name of Hermann Gunkel just absolutely weighs huge in modern scholarship about the book of Psalms. And he was one of the first uh, pioneers of a school of thought called form criticism. And form criticism or form analysis or genre analysis, instead of looking at whole books or whole swaths of material, looked at short units of scripture and classified them in terms of genre and especially looked for what Gunkel called their Zitz im Leben, which is, means setting in life. In other words, what was, if you will, the natural, cultural, historical habitat for this particular literary form? Okay, and Gunkel was the one who really brought this to the book of Psalms. Hymns are a single, a very large portion of the book of Psalms. This was Israel's hymn book. What we just saw, the Ashrei, is a hymn. Laments. Laments. Oddly enough, I think laments may be the largest single category of Psalms in the book of Psalms. Another word for laments, which you'll find in your handout, complaints. Is it any wonder that one of the foremost arts of Jewish living is fetching. <laughs> we are born to fetch, as the title of one book has it. And I love the way the author of that book put it. Fetching is complaining that has broken the satisfaction barrier. <laughs> and you have both individual laments and communal laments. We will take a look primarily at these two types or genres of psalm, hymns and laments. Then there are royal psalms. Two in particular I would point out for your future perusal, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, both of whom figure very heavily in the letter to the Hebrews that we covered last or was it last spring? I can't remember now. Happens to me these days. Okay. Royal Psalms, having to do with affairs at court. Another one, just again, I'll refer to it. We're not going to take a long look at it. Psalm 45 was probably composed for a royal wedding. Was probably composed for a royal wedding. Thanksgiving Psalms, okay, uh, and here it's interesting, I will pause just a moment to cover one Psalm, which Gunkel sort of parenthesized this, but Psalm 100, okay, the reason why I want to take a look at Psalm 100 is the superscription of it does say, Mizmor Todah, a song of thanksgiving, okay. Todah Rabbah, thank you very much. That's how you say thanks. Okay. Do, 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 do. Okay, so short hymn. 
A psalm of thanks, I'm reading now, this is the translation I want to use at this point because it is uh, the art scroll translation, Jewish translation from the Hebrew. A psalm of thanksgiving, call out to Hashem everyone on earth. Serve Hashem with gladness, come before Him with joyous song. Know that Hashem, He is God, it is He who made us and we are His, His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving, His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him, bless His name. For Hashem is good, His kindness endures forever, and from generation to generation is His faithfulness. Okay, Mizmor Toda, a psalm of thanksgiving. Again, that forms the end, if you will, of the Ashrei cycle. Okay, because you recite, besides the, you know, editions before and afterwards, Psalms 145 through 150. Okay. Now, the reason why I wanted to point that out to you is that there's another version of Psalm 100 that should be very familiar to you. I have here a reprint of a very interesting work, the... Psalms, whole book of Psalms collected into English meter, conferred with the Hebrew by Thomas Sternhold and John Hopkins. Has anybody ever heard of the Sternhold and Hopkins metrical Psalter? If you were one of our New England colonists in the 17th century, this was the only hymn book you had. That was it. It was metrical Psalms or nothing. But Psalm 100 had a tune composed to it, which is called Old Hundredth, and it runs like this. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice, him serve with fear, his place forth tell. Come ye before him and rejoice. The Lord ye know is God indeed, without our aid he did us make. We are his flock, he doth us feed, and for his sheep he doth us take. Oh, enter then his gates with praise, approach with joy his courts unto. Praise, laud, and bless his name always, for it is seemly so to do. For why the Lord our God is good, His mercy is forever sure, His truth at all times firmly stood, and shall from age to age endure. And you're getting ready for me to sing the lines that are not in there. Okay, sound familiar? Okay. You've got to realize that until the 18th century, all Christian Protestant hymnody, anyway, was almost certainly a matter of metrical psalms. That's the only thing you would have sung in church. Okay. Wisdom psalms. Again, I will point out the classic example of wisdom psalms is probably the very first book, first psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. Okay, and I will just point out what is classic about this wisdom psalm. And that is it makes use of antithetical parallelism to contrast the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. For Hashem attends the way of the righteous while the way of the wicked will perish. That's the last verse of the psalm. And the whole psalm is like that. A wisdom psalm will be like that. The antithetical parallel in illustrating the contrast between the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. And it's called a wisdom psalm because that type of antithetical parallelism is actually very characteristic of wisdom literature. You find it all over Proverbs. And then there are smaller genres and other types that you can look at at another time. Okay, it's time to take a look in depth at two of the forms that I think are important for us to look at. First is a hymn. What is the structure of a hymn? Okay. 
The first is an introduction and a call to praise, sing, and rejoice in God. Let's go back for a moment to the ashray. All right. Where is the introduction to the ashray? Anybody care to identify that? What? No, 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 no. The handout, the ashray. Okay. What verses are the introduction, the call to praise, sing, and rejoice in God? One through three. Actually, one through seven. One through seven is all the introduction, plus the two added verses on the front. Okay? That is all the introduction. In other words, what you're doing in these verses is that you are calling the congregation to worship, to praise, to sing to God. Then you get, in the second section, is the body, the reasons why God is to be praised, often introduced with the word key, because. Now, I don't think we have key in there, but. This is verses, let's see, eight through 20. Okay, 8 through 20 of the ashray. This is the body. What are some of the reasons why God is to be praised? He's gracious and merciful. And that's the indication you're into this because what is it describing? It's describing God, it's describing God's attributes. He is gracious and merciful. Okay, other reasons he is to be praised. That's right. You lift up all who are falling down and raise up those who are bowed down. So make Adonai lechol hanoflim v'zokef lechol hakafufim. Okay. Again, notice the parallelism. That's sort of good news, isn't it? Yeah. Other things that strike you in particular. Okay. The very last one, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Okay, notice here, that's again almost like a little wisdom emphasis, but you know, it's not just destroy the wicked, but preserve those who love him. Now, presumably, whether that's good news or not, it depends on which camp you find yourself in. Okay. My favorite, in many ways, is verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Literally, your kingdom is a kingdom over all worlds, and your, and your dominion endures, and your government endures from one generation to another. The reason why that was sort of very important to me I was having a little trouble once when I was in yeshiva in Israel about the whole concept of creation. And I thought basically the, what the doctrine of creation means is that God basically set the world in motion to operate according to natural law like a huge machine, like a big clock, and then basically went on vacation. Okay. 
And someone suggested, and of course what that basically means is, it gives you lots of problems when you come to the subject of miracles. Because what you're saying is, well, if it's such a perfect machine that God created, why would He need to come in and step in and break the rules every now and then? And so someone suggested I talk to Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook, who was the head of the yeshiva, and I talked to him and I explained how I had understood creation. He says, no, 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 no. His kingdom is a kingdom over all universes, and his governance endures from age to from generation to generation. In other words, creation isn't then. Creation is constant and now. God's governance and sovereignty and creative power are at work in every single place and every instant in time. Okay. And that is a different way of looking at creation. Okay. And then... We have the conclusion, which is renewed summons to praise. Now, we've looked at the ashray. There is another hymn or collection of hymns that is very important as a body. It is known as the Hallel. Hallel. And that, by the way, is interesting. The root Hallel is the same root as Tehillim Psalms, it's praise. Okay, the basic meaning of this is praise. Um, There's a very important place that this particular service shows up in the New Testament. Can anybody think about it? Think for a moment. We're talking about hymns. Something that happened in the life of Jesus. At the end of the Last Supper, what happened? No, at the end of the Last Supper. Before that. When they had sung a hymn, they went out. Ah, they sang a hymn. Have you ever wondered what hymn they sang? Psalms 113 through 118. Why? Because the Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118, were sung on all major festivals. All major festivals that was used. There is still a portion of the Passover Haggadah that includes the Hallel service. It's the second to last part of the Passover Seder. After the, it's after the meal. And the core of the Hallel service is Psalms 113 through 118. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I did want to go through some very interesting... Someone asked, would someone else be singing? Okay, take a look at the beginning of Psalm 118, the final hymn of the Hallel. Okay. And I'm sort of looking at verses 1 through 4. Anyone like to recite this for us? Okay. Okay, what's going on here? First of all, something to point out. Remember we said in him sometimes the section about why God is to be praised is introduced by the word key. That occurs several times. Odu ladunai ki tov. 
Give thanks to the Lord because he is good. Ki tov. Ki le'olam chasto. Because his chesed, his loving kindness is forever. But what else is going on here? Well, it's not just parallelism. What is let Israel say now? Let the house of Aaron say now. Let those who fear God say now. All right, who's, but who's saying that? What? No, these are human beings. Who is saying, let the house of Israel now say? Let the house of Aaron now say? Let those who fear God now say? Ah, the choir! The choir! And what is the response supposed to be? From the people called to worship. Kile olam chasdo. For his mercy endures forever. His loving kindness endures forever. In other words, the Levites would turn to all the Israelites there and say, Let the house of Israel now say, and they would all respond, Kile olam chasdo. Let the house of Aaron say, and all the priests would say, Kile olam chasdo. Let all who fear God say, and then hopefully everybody answers, Kile olam chasdo. Okay? At least you hope they are being honest with themselves at the same time. In other words, this is something that you find in Psalms. What is the context, therefore? What is the setting in life for this psalm, for this hymn? Okay, but I mean, where would you be hearing this? In the temple. Its setting in life is public worship on the festivals in the temple. Okay? And there are other indications later in the psalm. Okay. Take a look at verses 25 through 27. Please, Hashem, save now. Please, Hashem, bring success now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Hashem, the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He illuminated for us, bind the festival offering with cords until the corners of the altar. Now that last line, bind the festival offering with cords even unto the horns of the altar. What is, what's taking place there? What? Yeah. But what kind of, what is, what is that doing in the psalm? What is, what is that basically, what kind of thing, if you saw that in a worship book, would you consider it? It's a rubric. It's a stage direction. It's saying, okay, Bind the festival offering with cords, tie it to the altar. You even have the stage directions chanted. Okay, it's interesting because I remember when I was um, uh, in my home parish in Denver, they built a columbarium that was actually a courtyard just outside the entrance to the church. They called it St. Michael's Churchyard. And they had a little pamphlet that they did up for the interment that they always did actually before the funeral service. And one thing that they did not do very well in laying out the type for this pamphlet is that they didn't really discriminate in the italicized portions between what was the congregational response and what were the rubrics. And so every interment, you would always hear the congregation solemnly intone, 
the ashes are now placed in the crypt. <laughs> okay, that's a stage direction. Now, a couple of other phrases should sound familiar in there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Where have you heard that before? Come on, folks. We're coming up on the day. Where in the Gospels? Thank you. The triumphal entry. Now, actually, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That is the greeting to be given to every pilgrim coming up to Jerusalem on a festival day by the people of Jerusalem, but especially by the Levites who are welcoming them to the temple. Okay, it's a greeting. Now, one you probably don't know is what preceded that. Please save. In Hebrew, Ana Adonai Hoshiana. Ana Adonai Hatslichana. Anybody, what is the word, anybody ever wondered what the word Hoshana means? Hosanna? It's not praise. Everybody thinks it's praise. It's save, please. That's what Hosanna means. And there is a whole liturgy based on that word, Hosanna, that was said, not at Passover, at tabernacles. At tabernacles. There are a whole series of prayers that begin, Hoshana, Lamancha Eloheinu Hoshana. You know, for thy own sake, save us, please. And it's said in procession today around the synagogue in the times of the temple, the men would basically take the four species, a branch of palm, uh, three myrtle twigs, two willow twigs, and a citron bundled together, and in a procession around the altar. They would march around the altar crying out Hoshana, and then there would be an alphabetical acrostic different for each day of tabernacles that would be have as the choir Hoshana. In other words, if people were shouting Hoshana when Jesus came into Jerusalem, was that at Passover or was it possibly at Tabernacles? because tabernacles in the Jewish tradition is the messianic feast because of the promise that God would rebuild the fallen tabernacle, the fallen sukkah of David. Okay. We need to move on because we're coming now to the meat, actually, of what I wanted to do. Now, I just wanted to review from last week the structure of the law court form of prayer. Remember, this is covenant chutzpah. It's an address to God as judge, then a presentation of the facts of the case, the complaint and petition brought by the petitioner against God to God. This is Abraham arguing with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Moses arguing for the children of Israel after the, stole, after, the, after the molten calf, the golden calf. And then a concluding petition or request made by the individual or by Israel. Yeah, judge, you should have been here last week. Okay. In certain cases... An additional component may follow a divine response to the petition. You don't always win your case when you're arguing your case against God in front of God. Okay? But you have the right, as a covenant partner with God, to make the case. Now, this parallels in many ways the components of a lament. 
The first thing you have is an address to God. Then you have the core of the lament, the complaint. This is what's wrong. My life is absolutely miserable. The life of the people is a mess. Then there's a confession of trust. Look, I'm making this complaint to you because I trust you. I trust that you can do something about this. And a petition. What do you, what, you know, God in effect saying, what do you want me to do for you? All right? Words of assurance are offered. Now, who would be offering the words of assurance? Exactly. Okay. And finally, a vow of praise. Now, don't have time to do too much more. But you notice how that does sort of parallel. So let's take a look at, first of all, a corporate lament. Psalm 80. Psalm 80. Anybody want to read? Or shall I? I will. To the leader on lilies, a covenant of Asaph, a psalm. Now notice, it's to the leader, to the choir master, on lilies, that's the tune, a covenant. This is a covenant lament, okay? We're saying, we're going to remind God of his covenant obligations. Of Asaph, that's probably the author. A psalm. Hear, O shepherd of Israel, leading Joseph like a flock, shine forth, you that are enthroned upon the cherubim, in the presence of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come to help us. Restore us, O God of hosts, show us the light of your countenance, and we shall be saved." Okay, you've got the address. You've got, you know. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angered despite the prayers of your people? How, how you have fed them with the bread of tears. You have given them bowls of tears to drink. You have made us the derision of our neighbors and our enemies laugh us to scorn. Restore us, O God of hosts. Show the light of your countenance and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shadow and the towering cedar trees by its boughs. You stretched out its tendrils to the sea and its branches to the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pluck off its grapes? The wild boar of the forest has ravaged it and the beasts of the field have grazed upon it. Now here comes the petition. Turn now, O God of hosts, look down from heaven, behold and tend this vine, preserve what your right hand has planted. They burn it with fire like rubbish. At the rebuke of your countenance, let them perish. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, the son of man you have made so strong for yourself. And here comes the vow of praise. And so will we never turn away from you. Give us life that we may call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, show the light of your countenance, and we shall be saved. <coughs> <In a, coughs> excuse me. Now, do you see here, you basically almost have a mini law court prayer going on, but in the form of a lament. This is a corporate lament. Now, obviously, what's the context for this? You've got a national disaster taking place. Who would be leading the petitions? Let the hand be upon the man of your right hand, the son of man you have made so strong for yourself. Who in ancient Israel would have been the person leading? Not the priest. The king. It would have been the king. 
Okay? Now let's look at an individual psalm. How about Psalm 31? In you, O Lord, have I, to the leader, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, have I taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Incline your ear to me. Make haste to deliver me. Be my strong rock, a castle to keep me safe. For you are my crag and my stronghold. For the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that they have secretly set for me. For you are my tower of strength. Into your hands I commend my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O Lord, O God of truth. There's the declaration of trust. I hate those who cling to worthless idols, and I put my trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad because of your mercy, for you have seen my affliction. You know my distress. You have not shut me up in the power of the enemy. You have let not you have set my feet upon an open place. Have mercy on my, me, Lord, for I am in trouble. Okay, wait a minute. All right, we're not going to get through all of that because we're, almost, we're out of time. All right, again, an individual lament. Probably there are more individual laments, but again, keep in mind, what's the context for all of this? The context for all of this would have been an individual coming to the temple, presenting a sacrifice as a petition in a time of trouble. So, I just want to do a quick summary of what we've been looking at for the last two weeks. The context is Israel's covenant relationship with God. I stress covenant because the concept of covenant is what gives you the license to be bold and forthright. Okay. The setting in life is public worship. This isn't private devotion. In fact, it is probably correct to say that in the time of the first temple in biblical Israel, there was no concept of the individual interior life. Everything was done in public. Especially around sacrifice. The mode of practice chanted by a choir or cantor. And the spirit, boldness, confidence, and above all, honesty of a covenant partner. When I was a priest, you know, I was at St. Paul's, we had a youth Sunday once, and a 12-year-old girl was invited to bring the message, and she gave there probably one of the best definitions of prayer I've ever heard in my life. She said, prayer is being honest with yourself for a moment before God. Prayer is being honest with yourself for a moment before God. There are things in the Psalms we read and we say, how can he possibly say that? I am innocent of a great offense. You have tried me and known me. But again, the whole point is, it's perfect honesty. It's absolute honesty. God wants complete honesty and transparency in that relationship. And it is as a covenant partner that you have the boldness to carry that out. Okay? Now, next week we're going to be entering a different world. We're going to be talking about the B'nai Hanavi'im, the sons of the prophet, prophets, and the back to the desert movement begun by that character up there. Anybody recognize who that is? Anybody? That's Elijah being fed by the ravens. Elijah and Elisha and the sons of the prophets. So I want you to read 2 Kings 2, or as some people call it, 2 Kings 2. 2 Kings chapter 2.
All right? Yeah. Uh, actually, there is a possibility that they understood very well. According to biblical scholars, every seven years during the period of the judges, the tribes would be gathered together, probably at Shechem, uh, and they would have a renewal of the covenant. And part of what was done was that the uh, commandments, the book of the covenant, would have been read aloud in public. And so, this was constantly reaffirmed. You're not keeping your part of the bargain, God. Yeah, but, you know, the only problem is they also probably didn't understand that they weren't keeping it as well as they yeah. thought they were. Yes. What you were talking today about the heavens and all. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs of thanksgiving. Yeah. Probably I wouldn't make too much of the distinction between speak and sing. They would have sung it. That would have been almost taken for granted. But what he was also saying is make this the pattern for your speech. Okay? And songs, hymns, spiritual songs, you're basically talking about different kinds of psalms. Okay, and he probably would have done that. Plus, there were other hymns that were sung. For example, uh, in, in, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul actually quotes what was probably a well-known hymn in the Christian community. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every, and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? Um, by the way, what is the name that is above every name that Paul is referring to there? How would a Jewish person have understood the name that is above every name? No. What Adonai substituted for? yud heh vav -Hey. the name that no one was supposed to pronounce. In other words, God has given to Jesus his own name. Okay, that's pretty bold stuff in the Jewish context. So there were other hymns possibly as well. But again, you know, it's one of the things that he's trying to do here is he's saying, take a look at your language. Take a look at your speech. How do you talk to one another? You know, are you engaged in uplifting, edifying speech, or are you engaged in gossip and detraction and arguing and so on and so forth? Yes. What I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that probably at that point there was no such thing as personal devotion. If you wanted to offer a personal uh, 
petition to God, you would have brought a, t a sacrifice to the temple, and the psalm would have been chanted, and that would have been in public. No. Because they were all together. They were all together. In fact, even in, a different in fact, there's something that is very, very critical to understand. It says that after supper, Jesus took the cup, said the blessing, and gave it to them. Okay. The cup is the cup of blessing, which is used to recite the grace after meals, which in Jewish tradition was called the blessing, but you only use that when you had a minion. You only use that when you had a quorum. In which case, as far as Jewish worship is concerned, that's not a private event. That's public. That's public worship. Hmm? Yeah. That's right. All right.